Good morning, Redemption. Uh, you perhaps have been thinking this week, here we go again. We've done that before. Uh, and it's only going to be for a few weeks. Uh, how often have we heard that over the past 10 months with everything that's been said? And so I don't want to talk a lot about the pandemic, but before we get into the word, I do want to say a, f a few things here. The reality is it is what it is. We can't change anything. Um, and, but I want to explain briefly why we are submitting once again to these lockdowns and uh, to the government directives. I know personally at least three pastors here in Canada who have come out quite vocally uh, that their churches are not going to uh, lock down. They're going to practice civil disobedience. They've been rather vocal that other churches should be doing this if they want to obey the word of God. Of course, there's numerous U.S. churches as well. And uh, so I just want to share a little bit on why our elders believe firmly that we need to yield ourselves again to these mandates and lock down as directed. And so some are arguing that from a constitutional standpoint, we shouldn't uh, lock down as churches. And again, that's between them and their government, uh, but that's not a biblical reason. And so we're not following that. Others have said because this is a loss of freedoms and we're just going to lose more and more freedoms and that's a concern uh, for sure. But again, that's not a biblical reason and so we're not going to disobey or civilly disobey because of that. Others are saying because lockdowns don't work or they're going on about masks that don't work and all of that. The reality is that anybody on any side of these issues, whether it's masks, physical distancing, lockdowns, or the, or the uh, vaccinations coming out, you can find experts and real experts, uh, scientific people on both sides. You can find your studies. I've said this before. You can line them up. And the reality is that it's, if we're really honest, most of us, the vast majority of us cannot truly discern what the truth is in this. Now, I know many of you right now may be getting your back up and you know. Can I just say, unless you're a very skilled scientist with a, and have done a lot of research yourself, not just read things on the internet or in other places, we really cannot discern what the actual truth is on all of these different things. And so the reality is our country, our province, our city has a health issue. And uh, it is very difficult for most of us, I'd say the vast majority to discern what is true or not. And so we have chosen as elders to err on the side of uh, extra care for, and caution and concern for others. And the reality is, again, we do not believe our government is asking us to disobey God's word. And so please be aware of that. We want you to be clear on that. And so I'm not going to take a lot of time. I want to get into Matthew and our study of God's word. Uh, but we need to just be reminded of this. I did present a much more uh, fuller sort of explanation of this back in the summer on August 2nd in a sermon entitled Encouragement While We're Under the COVID Trial. You can find that on our website if you want more. It hasn't changed since then. I've reviewed it all and we've looked at it. And uh, so there's a more detailed explanation there. Uh, but uh, we are choosing to obey our government, Romans 13, and yield to these things. And we're not disobeying God's word as best we can discern uh, from a study of scripture and what we're being called to. I do find it humorous that the, those who in Canada that I know that are practicing civil disobedience, the most sort of well-known pastor in the U.S. that's practicing in their support and their defense of why they're doing this, they, all of them quote Romans 16, 16, and, or the other verses or three other verses like that in the New Testament, which say, greet one another with a holy kiss. 
And kind of humorously, I say, listen, if you pastors have personally practiced that before COVID, if your churches have, when you gather together, you kiss one another with a holy kiss, then I'll grant you those verses as part of your defense on why we need to continue to meet together. Uh, But that's kind of a side thing. That really what I hear very frequently is God commands us to meet together. God commands us to meet together. I would just say, show me in scripture where there's a specific command about what we're talking about, Sunday morning services, where we're commanded to meet together in the format of a Sunday morning service. And some will appeal, well, the, the name church, which in the Greek is ekklesia. And ekklesia, in its basic sense, are the assembled ones. And so they say by the very definition of the name church, the assembled ones, we must be assembling. And if we're not assembling, we're not the church. Well, actually, technically, ekklesia literally is the called out ones. And it has the concept of assembling, but it's the called out ones. And the, real, the idea behind it is those who are called out of the world, those who are called out of the kingdom of Satan are called into the body of Christ, into the family of God. And so we're brothers and sisters and that's the church. And there's a local expression of that. And we, all theologians say this, there's a local church, there's a local assembly, there's a local sort of identity of called out ones. And of course we love the church and we put a high priority on meeting together as a church. But there's also the universal church, which is all of those in the world who are called out ones. And our brothers and sisters in China and North Korea, in Iran, they can't gather as we can, but they're still the church. So that argument doesn't really hold water. They're still the called out ones. They're still the assembled ones in the sense that they're a part of a new family, a new kingdom. And of course we want to meet together. That's our desire. But I don't think we're disobeying the word of God in this. Often an appeal is made as well to Hebrews 10.25. I hear that and read that in almost every defense. Hebrews 10.25 the not neglecting to meet together. And again, I expanded on this in my August 2nd sermon so you can get that. But can I just say that's not a command from God about meeting on Sunday. It's not an imperative. It's not a command, just in a simple grammar. But it's also not even the point of the passage. It really sort of bothers me the way they're taking things out of context and emphasizing a sub-point to be the main point. The passage actually talks about in Hebrews 10, there's two statements of fact. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of, the, of Jesus, and since we have a great high priest, Jesus, so since we have those two realities in Christ, then it gives, uh, the writer gives three let us statements. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Secondly, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Third, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So since we have these realities in Christ, then let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That's the emphasis of Hebrews 10 in this passage. Now, in the third let us statement, how to stir up one another to love and good works, then the writer adds, not neglecting meeting together as the habit of some. It's not about the Sunday service as much as some were wavering, some were not holding fast, uh, some were wandering. And so the encouragement is to stir up one another. That's the instruction. A way we do that is gathering together. Now, that can be and certainly would normally include Sunday morning. But there's ways 
ways to stir up one another and to help one another through emails, through phone calls, through text messaging, through meeting in one-on-one when we can do that. And so it's, it's not a passage that's really dealing with the local church gathering on Sunday morning. So we're not violating that as a command of God to meet together. We're also not violating the command to sing together, though we love worship and we give a high priority to that. It's a wonderful privilege. We're not actually being persecuted, we don't believe, as a church or our churches. We actually have more freedoms than most. Last Sunday, Christmas Sunday, we had 800 people plus in this building. Now, albeit it was over four services, 200 or so, 225 or so in each service. But where else can you go in our society this past weekend and find that happening? Restaurants were limited to 10 people no matter how big their facility was, churches could have 30% of their facility capacity. So I'll stop there on our reasons. I just want to say that we don't see any command we're violating by submitting to the government here. And just a brief encouragement before I end this part here. Uh, Danny, one of our staff members, sent a link to an article to encourage us this week. It encouraged me. And in there, the writer, this woman mentions John 16, 13. Let me read it for you. I have said these things unto you, John 16, 33. I have said these things unto you that in me you may have peace. Now listen, and in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. In the world, you will have tribulation. As long as we're living on planet Earth, we will have tribulation. We'll have trials. We'll have suffering. There will be disease. There will be viruses. There will be restrictions. We'll, we'll have losses of freedom. There will be trouble and trial and tribulation as long as we're in this world. That's reality. That's a reality of living in a sin-cursed world. But take heart, do not be discouraged, do not be dismayed, for Jesus gives us encouragement in this. I have overcome the world. It doesn't mean today all your problems are going away. It's not a health, wealth gospel. But the reality is this world is soon to be over. It's passing quickly. We're citizens of another world, another realm. And we keep our eyes focused on that one. So we need to take heart because Jesus has overcome. He's overcome sin. He's overcome the ultimate enemy and death. He's overcome disease and illness and loss. And one day very soon, soon and very soon, Every tear will be wiped away, every wrong made right, every just, uh, injustice uh, fixed and solved. Everything will be changed. So t- don't be discouraged, but take heart. Be encouraged. In the middle of this pandemic, which is not going away, I think 2021 will be very similar to 2020 probably throughout the year, but we take heart in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're not discouraged. And although we'd love to be together, and that's what we long for, that's what we're praying for, that's what we work very hard towards, but we don't believe we're disobeying God or his word by yielding to our government. We're we doing this to love one another, to submit and be a testimony to Christ in our world. And we're just trusting him for yourselves, for us, for all of us together. And so I just want to encourage you that. At one final verse, Psalm, 5, Psalm 30, verse 5, Psalm 30, verse 5, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. All right, I'm going to restart the clock, and I'm going to pray, and then jump into my sermon. This is long with that sort of 
preamble there and then a full sermon, but you're watching from home, you can press pause and then fast forward a little bit later. You can take a break. You can have a nap, whatever you want to do. I don't have a clue what you're doing. I don't see you walking out. Um, so let me pray. And then we're going to jump in. If you want to be turning and get your Bibles, please do to Matthew chapter two. We're going to be in Matthew two and Luke two for our time in the word. But let me pray now. Father, we do want to um, humble ourselves. Uh, we want to confess our pride, confess at times we've had many attitudes that are sinful uh, in our thoughts, in our words, in our interaction. Um, we're frustrated with the world that we live in, with the restrictions. We're, we're, we're discouraged. We're in times perhaps depressed. Um, and we haven't always handled that well in a way that's honoring to you, in a way that's characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. And so we want to again express our confusion and our dismay. We, we, we are mourning the loss of meeting together on our Sundays. We, we long for that. We pray that this, this shutdown will be brief and it will not be extended like so many other things have been. We pray for your church to be gathered, not just 200 or so, but this room could be packed again, shoulder to shoulder, singing at the top of our lungs our worship. We long for and pray for all of that. But as long as in your sovereign rulership you have us in this place, we choose to give thanks. And we choose to say you are good in all things. You are only good. To us as your people, to us as your children, to us as your church, you are good in all things, and we worship you, and we give you thanks, and we pray that you would find us faithful. Now, as we look into your word, looking at the growing up years of Jesus, we just pray you would encourage us. I pray a special encouragement for parents with children in these ages, in these years. I pray for those who are in these years, for children, for students, for young people, but for all of us. Would you teach and instruct us, encourage us, strengthen us in your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, listen, we're picking up uh, a passage we missed uh, back in, I think it was October, maybe early November. I, I had to leave on a Sunday morning right before the 9 a.m. service to go to Emerge due to blood pressure issues. Everything's fine on that. It was just a medication issue. And so um, we, we had a sermon by Robbie Simons. We, we played, and uh, so you had that as God's leading, but we kind of skipped over this. Stephen picked up the next weekend as planned in chapter 3 and 4. So we're going to go back and I'm going to pick up Matthew 2, 13 to 23. So let me read our passage for us. And so if you have your Bible, Matthew 2, uh, 20, uh, verse 13 to 23. Matthew 2, 13 to 23. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And he said, rise and take the child, his mother, and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Verse 14. He rose and took the child and his mother, so Joseph and Mary, by night, and they departed departed to Egypt, and they remained there until the death of Herod. This, Matthew adds, was to fulfill the, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region, so not just the town of Bethlehem, but around it, who were two years old or under, according to the time that had been ascertained by, from the wise men. 
That this was fulfilled, again, Matthew wants us to know the prophetic nature of this, by what was spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She's refused to be comforted because they are no more. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. In other words, Herod. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But when he, Joseph, heard that Archelaus was reigning over, the Ju over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew north to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. Again, Matthew wants us to know, so what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he, Jesus, would be called a Nazarene. So we're going to talk about Jesus growing up years here. And so I just want you to understand that. This is where we're going with this. I'm skipping over my introduction just to have some time here as we're going to jump right into our passage. And so I want to split up this, and there's very little written on this. And I, I was thinking, this, you know, we could just kind of keep going with Matthew and not pick up what we lost here that one Sunday, but it just bothers me as a, somebody, I just think we need to cover every verse, and I think all of Scripture is important, so I want to talk about these verses, but I'm going to jump to Luke chapter 2 as well, so you can find that if you want. We're going to go back and forth a little bit. Luke writes a little bit more about this, but we're basically talking about the years from age 1 to 30 in this span of Jesus' life. And this is all we have. This and a few verses in Luke chapter 2 about all of those years. And so I just want you to understand that. And so we're going to split it up. I'm going to talk about his ages 1 to 12 in our first point, the early years of Jesus, ages 1 to 12, sort of looking in verses 13 to 22, although we'll just cover this briefly and then we'll kind of spend more time in Luke chapter 2. But here we have in verse 13, and they, they're departed, they're told by an angel of the Lord uh, to go to Egypt to flee because Herod wants to kill Jesus. And so they're told by God, to, and God's looking out for his Messiah, obviously. God's sovereign, he knows what's in the heart of Herod and everybody else. And some people think Jesus was just a few days old here, but it's after the wise men came, probably a number of months old, perhaps even into a year or two old, because remember, Herod kills all the babies two or under. And so the wise men, they didn't come when Jesus was in the stable, in the manger. The, the text actually tells us in verse 11, they came to a house where the child was with Mary and Joseph. And so this is a number of months at least after Jesus' birth. And so we have this here. And Herod is going to destroy or try to kill this little child. So God, the Holy Spirit, is directing Joseph to take care of his family. And verse 14, they sneak out by night, the cover of night, and they head to Egypt. So they go down from Jerusalem, down uh, in geography and under the, the, the Mediterranean Sea. And they head about 70 miles west and somewhat to the south of Bethlehem there. Well, not Jerusalem, but Bethlehem, which is right next to Jerusalem. And they, they went probably into Egypt a fair ways, another 30 miles. So they probably traveled about 100 miles into Egypt to a city called Alexandria. We don't know that for sure, but that's likely where they went. We think that because Alexandria was a city that had about a million Jews in it. Even though it was an Egyptian city, the Jews had migrated there. Uh, and so they, they had probably a million Jews. So that's likely where Joseph and Mary went. A good trek there uh, with a new... Uh, young baby, whether it's a few weeks or a few months old. 
And verse 15, they stay there until Herod dies. And they probably were able to do this financially because remember the wise man brought them gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so they probably had that that they could sell and be able to financially support Joseph could his family while they're living away from their home. And so again, God has provided for them to take care of them. And so Matthew records they spent this time living in Egypt, as I mentioned, is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. There's some 300 prophecies of the life of Jesus that are fulfilled in all aspects and details. Here's one. He would come out of Egypt, and he did. He spent perhaps a number of months in Egypt in his early life. Verse 16 tells us a sad story about Herod's jealousy and rage. And he's fearful that a king will grow up. And he's just a baby. And you think, how come you be fearful of a baby, of a little one? And yet Herod is so jealous for his power and such a wicked, wicked man. He decides to kill all the babies, the male children in Bethlehem and the surrounding area because they might grow up and be a king. And he wasn't even a king. He, he, wasn't, he didn't have a title king, but he thought of himself that way. And so he's fearful that the, this king has been born, and so he's going to murder them all. And he's just an evil, wicked man. Herod actually had his so-called favorite wife and her two sons, his own two sons, murdered. That's how evil he was. Just before he himself died, he thought one of his sons was trying to ascend to his position too quickly. So right before Herod himself died, he killed another of his sons. So a very wicked man who had no problem carrying out this awful deed on the families in Bethlehem and the surrounding area. Parents, could you imagine a knock comes on your door because through their, their senses, they would know you have a young boy in your home. A knock comes, there's a Roman soldier. He comes into your house, just barges right in. He pulls out his sword. He goes over to your little child, maybe weeks old or months up to two years of age, and he literally just either slices his throat or thrusts the spear or his sword through him, and then he walks out like nothing had happened. It's just heartbreaking. The murder of innocents in Bethlehem, leaving the parents wailing and mourning. The text tells us, quoting Jeremiah, there's weeping and lamentation in this area because of the horrific deed done by Herod and jealousy. And the next thing we get from Matthew, verses 19 to 22, sometime later, probably a few months later, maybe within a year later, up to a year later, Herod dies. So the angel comes and says to Joseph, it's safe to come back to Israel now. And so they're returning to the Bethlehem area. But remember, they had come from the north in the area of Galilee and Nazareth. When they came, just when Mary was towards the end of her pregnancy, they came down because Joseph's family was from Bethlehem. So he had to go there for the census that was being done. And so they are going to come back to that area. But when they get there, uh, they, they, they find out Herod's son is ruling in that area. And they're fearful he may as well want to kill Jesus. So they head back north to where probably Mary's family is from, Nazareth in the area of Galilee. So 100 kilometers or so heading north. So another trek after the 100 or so kilometers coming back from Egypt. So that's the story we have here. And there's not a lot said about Jesus here other than sort of some of these logistics. So we're going to come back to Matthew in a little bit. But I want you now to flip over to Luke chapter 2, where we'll learn a little bit more about the life of Jesus in this time period. So he's a one-year-old, maybe two years old here, could be three, uh, somewhere in that area. And we want to see sort of those years from, I'm calling age 1 through age 12, 
as we'll learn a little bit more in Luke chapter 2. And so in Luke chapter 2, let me just read a couple verses, verses 39 and 40. Hopefully you're there. Luke 2, 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong and filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, this is before what happens in verse 41 when his parents went to Jerusalem in that year. And so there's a, this is probably, he's probably close to 12. Maybe he is 12 or so at this point. But this is all we have. We have very scant uh, scriptural record of this. And Luke actually uses three different um, indicators of Jesus' growth. Back in uh, chapter 2, verse uh, 16, where we read there that he, that it's translated as a baby, a 2.16 is a baby, as he said, and they went with haste and Mary and Joseph, and, ha and the baby was lying in a manger. So that word baby is what we'd understand as baby. It's a, it's a newborn. It's an infant. And then in verse 40 of Luke chapter 2, in our passage here, the word ch child is used in the ESV. This is a word that could mean a baby, but often would mean a toddler uh, into those early years. We would say elementary sort of age years. And then in chapter 2, verse 43, which we'll get to in a few moments, he's called a boy. Thus returning the boy, Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. That word boy would be what we would understand, and Jesus here we know is probably 12 to 13. It's a kind of a teenager into that sort of stage. So we have him as a baby or an infant, as a toddler into a sort of elementary age, and then into the teen years. And at that stage, they would say at 13, he's become an adult, but we would understand as a teenager. And so we're looking at that sort of time frame here uh, where Jesus is transitioning. And uh, so a lot has changed. Just think about today. Let's say Jesus is somewhere between maybe 10, 11, 12, 13 in those years here in our passage in Luke 2, 39 to 40. Uh, think about who would be in that age in your society, in your families, uh, your families, uh, your children, where you are at it, perhaps as a child listening to this. Um, it's very different in their times, in the New Testament times, than in our times. Things have really changed in our society. We think often even a 20-year-old isn't held to all the responsibilities of adulthood, even though they have the privileges of adulthood, but often we don't hold them to behave like an adult. What happens is people keep pushing the age of accountability, the age where people are responsible for everything they do, further and further up. And so they're not held to the responsibility of their own choices and actions. We, in our culture, a 15 or 17-year-old is not held responsible for a whole lot. We have the Young Offenders Act, where they can do the worst of deeds, but they're not held responsible beyond a few years because they're a teenager, or they're a 15 or whatever year old it is. They're just a child. We, we have it in this city with Fanshawe College and Western University where, where people are in their either late teens or 20s and they're at a higher education. They have these parties and they do these things. And again, the excuses are made over and over. Well, well, they're just a university student. They're just a college student. And we give them a pass on all of some of the awful things that happen. And yet in future generations, their same age group, their same peers were fighting in wars and leading uh, battalions into battle, they were flying planes, they were even building you know, companies and things, and yet the partiers today, we let off with just saying, well, they're just whatever age they are, they are. 
It's really a sad change that's not for the good. What has had to happen, and it's understandable, the preparation for employment, the, the things have got more complicated in our society, so it takes more years to do the training to be, get, to be ready to carry on a full-time job as a career. As that has gone up in age, what's happened is we have moved the moral responsibility, ethical responsibility, all of those accountabilities up as well. That's not good. That's been a, a bad thing in our society. Do you know in the Jewish culture, just a little education on the Jews in Jesus' day and the culture of his day, a rabbis taught that Jewish boys specifically, and that was their culture, sadly not the girls, but they, the same point they would apply to the girls every bit as capable as the boys, but they, they would be taught scripture at age five. Did you hear me now? At age five, they would start teaching them systematically the word of God. I wonder how many parents are doing that. We're not talking just a little light Sunday school, David and Goliath story with a picture to you know, use Korans in color. They taught them the word of God. At age 10, they taught them the Mishnah, or what is called the Jewish law. So not only God's word, the first five books of the Old Testament and beyond, but now the Jewish law. At age 13, they were held responsible. That's why I say they were adults. They were held responsible to obey and fulfill the word of God. At age 13, they were responsible for their own obedience to the word of God. 13 in our culture... Sadly, we seldom expect anything from a 13-year-old. They're only 13. They're just a, what, a child. It's a very different sort of understanding. By 15 in the Jewish culture, they were to learn the Talmud, which was the Jewish commentaries on the Old Testament. So at 15, they're studying the commentaries, technical, detailed commentaries on the Word of God. Parents, do you realize that about 85% of your child's character is developed by the first, in the first five years of life? But so often, the way our culture is, we just want to entertain them, let them watch Netflix or cartoons or let them play games, and, and we don't, we're not even thinking of educating them until well after the age of five. Just entertain them, make sure they're happy. But here are the Jews, and I think this is a good reminder for, I'm not talking about being crazy in all of this, but we need to start thinking more seriously about this, start teaching them the Bible. Fathers, could I say to you, this is a responsibility, and we often feel so inadequate in our own struggles, but can I say, set all of that aside. You're not perfect. You're far from perfect. Your kids already know that, as does your wife. But could you just apply yourself to seek the God's word and say, well, I'm not a reader. Well, you can learn to read. You can learn that exercise, that muscle. Uh, you don't know God's word. That's fine. Stumble along in it. Listen, practice makes perfect on this. So practice, put it into practice. Both parents, mothers and fathers. If the father's not there, mothers, you may need to do this, but we need to start being serious about God's word, the reading of it, the study of it, understanding it, applying it, living it. Parents, we need to get serious about teaching our children God's word. Listen, it's not the church's responsibility. It's not Jeremy and the youth ministry responsibility. It's not our kids' ministry. They come alongside and help parents. 
I've been accused by, in the past by parents, it's my fault or our church's fault that their child's not walking with the Lord. We may have made some mistakes. I may have made some mistakes. But in the end, there's responsibility for the parents to train up their children. That doesn't mean they're responsible whether their kids believe or not. That's on the children. When they become an age where they can make their own choice, that's on them. You could do the best job as a parent. There's no guarantee here. But parents, we need to get serious about teaching our children God's word, calling them to trust and follow Christ, seeking not only their salvation, but their sanctification. This is why our youth ministry is the way it is. This is why our our kids' ministry is the way it is. Listen, Polycarp, the early church father, and he was a martyr, he came to Christ at the age of nine. The great Jonathan Edwards, who's preaching stirred New England, he came to Christ at the age of seven. Count Zinzendorf, who started a missionary movement, he signed a covenant at age four, which read, Dear Savior, do thou be mine, and I will be thine. And he stuck with it. He turned his part of the world upside down. Isaac Watts came to Christ at age nine. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, became a Christian at age 12. And at age 17, he was pastoring. Now, we're not recommending that necessarily, but we're saying they're capable. The problem's not our children. The problem's us and our system and our beliefs today. That we can't do any of that. We can't teach them that. We can't disciple them in that. We can't expect that from them because they're just a child. The point is that wisdom, listen, biblical wisdom is not really that age-dependent. Wisdom is applied knowledge. And if we're teaching them the word of God and how they're to apply it, they can actually live with biblical wisdom even as what we would call them as children. Verse 40, the child, this is Jesus somewhere in the ages from one, two, three, up to probably around 12. The child grew and what? Became strong and was filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Jesus grew and became physically strong. It doesn't mean he was muscle man. It just meant he was growing physically. He was changing from age two to four to six to eight to 10 to 12. He was growing physically. And what? He was filled with wisdom. Pre-12 or 13 years of age, filled with wisdom. You say, well, of course he's God. No, no, we've talked about this before. 100% God, 100% man, but in all ways, Jesus was human. He had to learn and grow. He didn't come with this innate, all this knowledge. He was taught, he was taught. He studied, he learned. In his humanity, his parents diligently taught him the word of God. He studied and learned the Old Testament, his scripture. And because of that, he was filled with wisdom. He had a wisdom for living even as a child. And the favor of God was upon him. Favor means grace, kindness, care, goodwill. Can I tell you the grace of God upon your children as well? Upon you and I? Let me read the verses 41 to 50 here. Another story of Jesus' growing up years. Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, so here we know Jesus is 12, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, they were returning, and the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. 
His parents didn't know it. So he's staying back there, moving on, back heading home. And supposing him to be with a group, they went with a whole group of people. They went a day's journey, and then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. He's 12. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you with great distress. He said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? They did not understand the saying that was spoke to them. And he went with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother, mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And here another statement. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So here again, he's tw- age 12. And according to the law of God, they're going to the Passover. And this is required annually for the Jews. And so they're going. And they would take a lamb or some sort of animal and they would offer it as part of their sacrifice on the Passover. And so verse 39, when they performed everything according to the law of the Lord, that this is what they went there because they were obeying the Bible. They were parents who believed the Bible, taught their son the Bible and their children the Bible, and they were obeying the Bible. So here we know for sure Jesus is 12, and he's, he's more than aware of his purpose for being and his reason for being in human form. He, he knew he was the ultimate lamb. I, I just wonder, have you ever thought what Jesus thought when he went to his first Passover, probably his first Passover, Perhaps not. Maybe he had been there. But do you ever wonder what he thought as he watched lamb after lamb after lamb having its its throat slit and the blood pumped out in sacrifice? You ever wonder what a 12-year-old boy thought watching that? Knowing what was coming for him? That he was the ultimate lamb? That a sacrifice, that he was going to be the sacrifice? As a Passover happened, thousands and thousands of animals sacrificed. The blood would be everywhere. It would be hot and sticky and smelly. Have you ever wondered what a 12-year-old thought of all of that? He's human. His parents and siblings, after performing all the law required, they head back to Nazareth. They're the whole group of people. They traveled down from Nazareth. They're now heading back north. Caravan of people. They're just assuming a 12-year-old. Some of you parents do that when you're with other families. Oh, he's with one of the other families. It took them a day before they noticed he wasn't with them. They search for a while. They end up going back. It takes three full days. And then the text tells us they find him in the temple. He was sitting. It says he was sitting. at. He sit, this is what would happen. A rabbi would teach and people would sit at the rabbi's feet and the rabbi would teach them. And often the way they taught was a, a dialogue question thing. They would ask questions of their students who would answer and then they would instruct them in their answers to give them the correct answers. And so here a rabbi is teaching, but this 12-year-old boy is answering in such a way he's stunning them all with his answers. Why? Because he'd been taught from a young age. And we're saying 12's young. Yes, it is but he'd been taught even younger the word of God. Now, humanly taught. He didn't know the entire Bible. He was a human. He was taught the word of God. He studied it. His mom and dad were diligent teachers of it. They weren't perfect. They were sinners, but they taught the word of God. Now, here in verse 48, there's emotion expressed by his parents. You parents would understand that. Jesus didn't sin by what he did because he had never sinned. And so there's no sin here. Even as he responds to them, he's not sinning in his response. He's just stating fact. These are actually the first words recorded of Jesus anywhere in in the New Testament. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? 
Even at age 12, he understood that he had a stepfather, Joseph, but he was, a, he was there as the son of God, as the son of the first person of the Trinity. He identifies himself this way. So the first 12 years of Jesus' life up to this age, he's learning to walk and talk. He's learning to speak. He's learning a trade as a carpenter. He's learning to obey. We'll explain that in a minute. He's a 100% normal boy. He's a 100% human. He went through all the things that other boys did, the human sort of things. Only he was unique in the sense he never, ever sinned. Even at age 12, they're culpable, they're responsible. This is part of this transition that's happening from age 12 to 13. He was sinless in all he did. We don't know any more about his life in all of these years. It is interesting. There are some writings from back in the day, back in the days soon after Jesus. They're called Gnostic Gospels. Gnostic is a sort of this hyper-spiritual secret knowledge thing. And so some people who weren't believers but were religious wrote things that they wanted to be equivalent to the four Gospels. So they wrote things about Jesus' life, the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Mary. They gave names to them. It wasn't Thomas or Mary who wrote them, but they gave names to try to sort of increase the prominence of them. They're Gnostic Gospels. They're not inspired scripture. They're filled with errors and nonsense and for a lot of it. But, but one of them has, it's called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, and it's supposedly written by Thomas, but it's not, and it's about the infancy of Jesus. It's created, it's full of myths and lies, but some things they, they say about Jesus' early years, and again, this isn't true, this isn't inspired scripture, but some people trying to fill in what scripture doesn't tell us, and supposedly the Gnostic Gospel, this infancy Gospel of Thomas says, Jesus breathed life into birds that he fashioned from clay. So he got some mud, got it wet, made a clay bird, then he breathed life into it because he was lonely, and the birds came to life so he had playmates because he was lonely another myth another lie about him was that he cursed a boy who did something to him and the boy died and he cursed another boy who also dies and that boy's parents became blind again you can just see the nonsense in this and a myth says later he seemed to feel bad about it and he raised both boys from the dead it also says he once healed a man who chopped his foot off with an axe Another myth is he carried water on a cloth and the water didn't go through the cloth. It was miraculously held by the cloth. Another time it says he provided an entire feast for a whole group of people from one head of a grain, from, a wheat, from, from wheat, and just one head it provided a whole feast. Another one, this was good as a carpenter, it said that he was building a bed with his father and they cut a piece of wood too short, so Jesus miraculously lengthened it so they wouldn't waste it and could finish the bed. That's the nonsense out there. We know what, because the Gospels tell us, John tells us, his first miracle was at the wedding when he turned the water into wine. So there's all this theory behind these years. We just don't know much more about them. So that's kind of ages 1 to 12. Now we're just going to take a brief look at ages 13 to 30, the middle years. And so go back to Matthew, and there's really very little there. We're going to come back to Luke, so keep your finger there. But back to Matthew chapter 2. Uh, here and we'll just really see a very briefly here uh, what's hinted at his his life here verse 23 the last verse of chapter 2 in Matthew and he went Jesus went and lived in a city called Nazareth he lived there for his growing up years it was spoken by the prophets he might be called a Nazarene Jesus was known as Jesus Nazarene because that's where he spent most of his years growing up after being in Egypt Bethlehem and then Egypt 
And so Jesus went with his parents, and we know during his growing up years, he had other siblings. Scripture tells us that. He had four brothers and two sisters. And so we know some things about his family. And so these years, that's all Matthew says about all these years, from 13 to 30 really even younger than that because Luke is the one who tells about the age 12 incident. He doesn't tell us any more about Jesus' life here. That's all we know. So we, we're just kind of filling in a little bit. We'll go back to Luke and see a little bit more. But we have 18 years where we're told nothing. Nothing at all about his, his life until his public ministry begins at age 30. Now, age 30 to 33, all that he does in his public ministry is covered by the rest of Matthew and the other Gospels, but is very vague on what happens for those ages 12 to 30 and even under that. Specifically, we have 18 years here where we don't know anything here. There's not, not, we're not told anything. But what is interesting is I, I started wondering and thinking about this. I was studying it. Why those years when we're, not, we're told nothing about them? Why, why did he wait till 30 now, God could have done it. Listen, God came into his creation to redeem his creation. God could have come into his creation in a different way. He, he could have just come in and, and been fully man and, and been an adult man and just spent a week here living and then dying and being resurrected. And, and so we have to kind of think about a little bit why all these years, why growing up, why all of this, why all these years where nothing is told to us about? Are they not important? Well, they actually are important. One thing that it teaches us, because the Bible says this, Jesus was a humble man. He learned humility. Yes, God's humble, but again, as a 100% human, he had to learn some of these things. And so he grew up learning these things. He learned to wait. He learned to wait till he was 30. He knew what was coming. In our day and age, this is a good reminder for us, teens, 20-somethings, 30-somethings, all of us, we suffer from impatience. Patience. We want things now. A big, big issue in our world today is, is gratification, instant gratification. We don't want to delay. We want it. We want it now. That's why debt is, is rampant because people will, will not wait to save up. They'll go buy it. They want it now. It's happening at Christmas. It happens all year. It's this instant gratification thing. It's, it's devastating. We want things. We haven't learned to delay. We haven't learned patience we haven't learned self-control. We haven't learned to wait. It's interesting. Jesus was learning all of these things. These years weren't wasted years. He was growing in these areas. He always had self-control in some degree, but it grew. He, he always had obedience, but it grows. We all want everything now. This is why sin runs wild in our culture in so many ways. We want everything and we want what we want and we want to fulfill our pleasures. We want what we think will make us happy. We don't want to wait. We don't want self-discipline. All of those things are rampant in our society. It's interesting when you think about why Jesus waited 30 years to begin his public ministry. He could have begun it sooner than that. Why this waiting? Why all these years where we're told nothing about them? What's the purpose of that? Well, I think one purpose because the book of Hebrews tells us this. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. I don't have it on the screen, but Hebrews 4, 15 says this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Who's our high priest? Jesus. So our high priest is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? We have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. I think one of the things happening in these years from, years from 12 to 30, from even younger to 30, 
even though we're not told about it, again, reading into scripture here a little bit between the lines, I think one thing we're seeing is that he was tempted in all ways. It doesn't mean just at age 30 he was tempted when he was in the wilderness. He was tempted in all ways as we are, yet was without sin. So he can understand. Listen, listen, 15-year-old. He can understand what it's like to be a 15-year-old. 25-year-old, he can understand what it's like to be 25. As an adult, he can understand because he was an adult. But for, for our children, for a seven-year-old, he can understand. He, he was a child. He was a, a young, you know, junior high. He was a teen. He was a 20-something. And all without sin. All in complete holiness. Listen, listen. He, he was able to walk in perfect righteousness. He did this, as we saw earlier on in the study of Matthew, walking dependently upon the Holy Spirit. And so for our children, when they come to an age where they can understand sin and their need for a Savior, they need to confess and believe in Christ, and then they need to start that process. Parents, we need to stress that with them of walking in sanctification, walking in holiness. It's possible. We just say, no, they're a kid, they're a kid, they're a child, they're too young, they're a teenager. We, we believe teenage rebellion is a necessity. It's not a necessity. It's called sin. It's wrong. It needs to be repented of. You see, Jesus lived perfectly righteous. That's part of our salvation. It wasn't just his death on the cross. It was his death on the cross as the unblemished lamb. It was his death on the cross who knew no sin. The very fact he lived 30 years through all of those years, all of those temptations, all of those trials, all of that suffering, but was without sin is what qualified him to be the sacrifice to die for our sin so that payment would be complete and then his perfect righteousness his obedience through all of that is applied to us because we haven't been obedient and righteous. He was a representative of mankind. He was a second Adam. He did what the first Adam did not do. He did not live in obedience. Jesus did as a human, as the second Adam. Now just jump back to Luke chapter two here just to help us sort of wrap this up. Luke 2 Again, 51 and 52. He went down into Nazareth. He was submissive to his parents. That's what Matthew was talking about. He grew up in Nazareth. And Jesus, listen, verse 52 in Luke 2, he increased in wisdom. Remember that was said at age 12. He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He increased in wisdom. He was increasing in wisdom at age 12 and he was increasing in wisdom all the way up to age 30. And he grew in stature again. Just saying physically, he grew up. He was a man. He was a normal baby, then a toddler, then a preteen, then a teen, then a 20-something, and then up to 30. He was growing physically. There wasn't anything special about him physically. Math, Isaiah tells us that. In, in Isaiah, we, we learn that. Isaiah 53, verse 2. Isaiah 53, 2. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus didn't walk around. Everybody go, man, he's somebody special because he's so handsome. He's a GQ man. There was nothing about him physically that would lead anybody to think he was the Messiah. He wasn't a superhuman. He was, a, in that sense, a, a normal Jewish boy and then man. Luke's just telling us he grew up, but he grew up in more than physical stature. He grew up in wisdom and in favor with man and God, with God and man. He grew up in favor with man. What does that mean? Well, again, he was without sin. He treated his siblings, listen, he treated his siblings 
perfectly holy in every way. Never once jealous. Never once lost his temper. Never once got angry. He submitted to his parents perfectly in a holy way. He treated the other people in his town, even though perhaps they were still making fun of his mother, who they thought had been unfaithful when she was betrothed. He treated everybody, and he grew in favor with man. He was kind. He was good. He was gentle. He always considered others more significant than himself. He was patient. He never got angry. He didn't throw tantrums. He didn't blow his top. He wasn't jealous or bitter. And, and, and he grew in favor with those around him. Now that ended with the Pharisees and scribes and things, but the point is here, he was a godly influence and presence wherever he went. And then also he grew in favor with the Lord. Again, favor is, is goodwill, it's grace, it's kindness, it's mercy, it's gratitude. He grew in favor with God as well. You say, well, how did he grow in favor with God? The book of Hebrews helps us. Hebrews 5.8, you need to write that down. Hebrews 5.8 says this, now listen to this. For those who think he was more God than man, Jesus, Hebrews 5, 8, Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned obedience. He was never disobedient and he learned to obey. That's not what it's saying. But he had obedience in a small kernel form as he was young and as he grew, his understanding of obedience grew and he learned obedience. He grew in obedience. Not from disobedience to obedience, but he grew, his obedience grew. How? By suffering. We don't like that. We don't want to suffer. But he learned, he grew. He was human. And so he grew in these things. He was taught by his parents. He was directed by his parents. He was discipled by his parents. He learned obedience. He grew in, in his obedience, always increasing. So that's what we have in Scripture. That's all we have from these years. I just want to take a few minutes now to apply this for us, and then we'll be done. Two application points on this. Two application points. The first is for those who are Christ followers. For those, this is not for those who are not believers. If, if you're not a believer of Jesus, what you need to see is him as Savior and Lord. You need to repent of your sin and confess your faith and trust in Jesus to see your need for a Savior and a mediator and to one reconcile you. But uh, this, this instruction, this application is for those who are believers. All right? I think it's important to understand that. For those who are in Christ... Jesus is an example for us. He's an example for you parents. He's an example for you who are in those ages and for all of us. Too many refuse to be held accountable in our day and age. Young people, 20-somethings, you refuse to be held accountable. I'm just whatever, and you fill in the blank. And too many parents, can I just say it, refuse to hold their children accountable. We make excuses for them constantly. Yes, they're children and they're growing, but I think we've gone way too far the one way. We say, well, they're only 10. She's only 10. He's only 14. They're only 18. He's just a student. He's, he's just in university or Fanshawe. Or he's, he's just a young adult. And we refuse to hold people accountable. And because the preparation for employment has gone up in years, we push out these responsibilities that should be rightly owned at a younger age. 
We, we've come to believe this. Listen, we've come to believe a worldview that students can't be taught. They can't be encouraged. They can't be stretched. They can't be held responsible. They can't be responsible for their own attitude and behaviors. We make excuses for them. Oh, they're just shy or they're just this or that. And when we mistake and misunderstand things like temperament with moral character and we're making excuses for things we shouldn't make excuses. We think they can't walk in holiness or obedience to Christ. We don't expect things of them. We don't call them to a high standard. We just like, just, just get them through those years. Just keep them happy. And when they become an adult, they can, they, we, listen, that's a lie of Satan. Whatever you fill in with, they are only, you're making excuses. And, and, and yes, there's times we're working on it. We're working on it. And we're, we're discipling. We're training. There needs to be some discipline, some correction. But don't be duped and foolish by a, a fleshly, unbiblical worldview of people, of children, of young people. Hebrews 5.18, Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Our children need to learn obedience and then learn the word of God and the knowledge of the word so they can walk in wisdom. They need to be discipled. They need to be taught. They need to be directed. They need to be corrected. Listen, it's a lie of the world that they have all that is needed within them. And our job is just to free up their environment and let them become what is already within them. What is within them is sin. And we, we're called to, to direct and to correct and to disciple and to instruct and to teach them, to train them up, to say no to sin and self. They need to be taught self-control. They don't need to be free to do whatever they want. They're driven by impulse and immediate gratification. They're, they're driven by laziness and irresponsibility. That's the fruit of the flesh, of the sin. And, and so we need to direct and, 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 and help teach them. How to say no to the worldly pleasures and no to sloth and no to selfishness, no to pride, no, no to laziness. How to say yes to Jesus and yes to obedience and yes to the word and yes to a, a walk after Christ and a yes to others and a yes to God's glory. So many parents are consumed with their children's happiness. Can I tell you, please hear me carefully. Your children will never, ever, ever experience true joy and true happiness apart from a life submitted to Jesus Christ in a pursuit of holiness. It's a lie you've believed. The world promises, sin promises, selfishness promises, all these things. And so many parents are caught up in just wanting their children to be happy. You listen, parent, your call is not their happiness, it's their holiness. Don't be satisfied just that they profess to be a Christian. How often is, oh, my child's a Christian. Well, if your child is saved, then they need sanctification. And that's an ongoing process. Get serious about it in your own life so that you can lead them in their life. It starts with the knowledge of God's word. It starts with an understanding of who we are and who he is and what he's called and what our sin problem is. And as we study God's word and seek to apply God's word, then what comes with that is wisdom as the Holy Spirit helps us in that. We need that in our lives and our children need that. We need to think a little bit more like the Jews did in Jesus' day. Parents, teens, 20-somethings, even 30-somethings, what's going on in our world today? We give everybody a pass. Oh, they play video games by the hours upon hours upon hours. Or they're consumed with social media and the likes and the pictures and the selfies and all of that and the popularity, their, 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 their 
there should be men, but there's boys that are in a man's body or they're girls in a woman's body. They're selfish or impulsive. They're not responsible because they learned these things from us and we haven't done a good job discipling. It's not impossible to walk sold out to Christ as a 12-year-old, and 18-year-old, to dig into God's word, to be a man or woman of prayer, of humility, of usefulness for Jesus. I've mentioned I'm reading a book on Robert Murray McShane, he pastored a church of 1,000 people at age 23. He died at age 29. He only had a seven-year ministry. Died at age 29. And yet he had profound impact on thousands, known for 200 years later. Jonathan Edwards, at age 19 to 20, penned 70 resolutions that he committed his life to. We just give our kids and teenagers and 20-somethings a pass on everything. One final application point is you pursue Christ in this, not just salvation, but sanctification. Just know this is a battle. I'm encouraging and pressing. I know I'm pressing hard on this. But here's the problem is it's massively difficult because our own flesh hates it. Our children's own flesh hates it. The world hates it and Satan hates it. And the more serious you get about your own walk with Christ and the more serious you get about discipling those others, whether it be your, people in your small group or in a church or friends or your children, the more serious you get, the more opposition will come. It'll come from within in our flesh because we hate the self-control. We hate the discipline. We hate mortifying the sin. And also the world hates it and Satan hates it. And so there will come deep and constant opposition. Can I just tell you, that's a reality and that's a picture that you're on the right path. Jesus pressed on through 30 years and then through the final three years. And your friends and your flesh and the world and Satan hate you getting serious about this. But could I just encourage you today to take the example of Jesus, to, to just follow the example of Jesus whether it's at age 12 or whether it's 15 or 18 or 25 or 30 or whatever age you are, get serious about your salvation and sanctification in the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this word from Scripture. We thank you for these little glimpses, these little snapshots into the life of Jesus in the early years. Uh, we, we do pray for wisdom and how to apply these things in our world it is a different day and age in so many ways, but the, the heart is the same, the need is the same, the need for a savior, the need for sanctification, the call to holiness, the call to obedience. These things are not different. The ability we have, whether it's at age five to learn things that the Jews did in those days or age 12 or 15 or whatever it is, we have those abilities. And I just pray you would open our eyes to see where we've been deluded and deceived. You would grant a, a, a conviction and a consistency in seeking to, so over time, bring change as we seek to walk with you and seek to disciple and raise up others that you've entrusted to our care. And so we just pray you would help us to follow the example of Jesus, not trying harder, but again, filled by your spirit, empowered by your spirit, enabled by your spirit, all for your glory. We pray this, amen. Mm -hmm.